The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So good to see you. Uh, this is our last class in, on Christian contentment, so that means that all of you are ready to graduate with certificates in Christian contentment. So congratulations. Uh, I'm excited for each one of you. So let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll go on. Lord, thank you for this time we've had over these um, 13 weeks, I think it's been, including this one, to, uh, to look at Christian contentment. And I thank you for uh, those that have come week after week and have been eager to learn. And I pray that you would help uh, each of us, Lord, to put into practice the things that we have learned, the things that you've laid on our hearts. Uh, there's still more for us to learn and, and to put into practice, and we pray that you would strengthen us as we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so like I said, this is our last class <clears throat> Excuse me, on Christian contentment. Uh, I want to talk about practical steps uh, by which we can uh, attain a Christian contentment day by day. Uh, I think all of us knows that a, sta- a status or a, a, a sense of Christian contentment uh, comes on us as Christians frequently. That's not the issue. The issue is what causes it to go away. What causes us to move from a, a feeling of joy and peace in the Lord to then not being uh, joyful or peaceful in the Lord and so that we can actually say, right now, honestly, I'm discontent. Um, and so I want us to have that sense uh, in front of us that every day we can and should establish our hearts under the hand of God in peace and joy through our faith. We should do that, and we'll talk about how to do that, but I'm, I'm really advocating in the morning, in a quiet time, that we should labor through Scripture and prayer and meditation to get our hearts into a peaceful state, and then you have to fight for it. And then things are going to happen, and you have to fight for and defend that. And also, I think key is going to be the ability to recover. Because, you know, we can say you have to fight for it, but we don't always fight well. And Satan is so clever, and there's combinations of things we didn't see coming. And we find ourselves like Peter the night that Jesus was arrested, wondering, how did I get here? How did I, how, what, what maneuvered me to the place where I'm calling down curses on me if I even know Jesus? How could I begin the evening so certain that I love Christ and would be willing to die for him? And within a, a few hours, I'm like this. And I think all of us feel that. We feel like, boy, I am pathetic. I am so weak. I am, like Paul says in Romans 7, a wretched man who will deliver me from this body of death, he said. So the ability to recover, to confess sin, to reestablish ourselves in Christian contentment and, and then go on, that's going to be part of it too. So as we've begun every week, I want to do uh, some review Um, Before I review what's on the sheet, I just want to remind you some of the things we've looked at over the last few weeks, not the entire class. Every week we've gone over Philippians 4 and the Christian uh, definition of Christian contentment, which go over one more time. Uh, But we've also looked at uh, how Christ teaches uh, contentment. We've we've seen the the various ways that he ministers contentment to us, the things that he, uh, he exemplified, the way he carried himself, the way he walked in Christian contentment every moment of his life and how he carried that right to the cross, submitting to his father, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, that he was humble and quiet under the hand of God his whole life, 
So he displayed that for us. And then by his atonement, uh, he shed his blood for our sins. And without that, Christian contentment would be impossible, without the atonement of Christ. And by his resurrection, he came to life in a new life, a resurrection life that Paul says in Romans 6, we can walk in by the power of the Spirit. We can be united with Christ in his resurrection power and live a whole new kind of life. And again, that's foundational to any, uh, any Christian contentment. So Christ's death and his resurrection uh, wins for us Christian contentment. And then his commands, the way he deals with our anxieties in the Sermon on the Mount, the way he reasons with us so that we would not be anxious. Anxiety is such a killer to Christian contentment and how Jesus gives us really so many different weapons so that we would not be anxious about our lives, what we eat or drink, or about our bodies, what we'll wear, that we would actually just be able to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and let God bring everything else uh, to us. The more you understand Christian contentment, you can see that that's right down the center of what he's talking about there, that as you focus on God, on, on his kingdom, and just let everything else come, whether it does or not, that's a very much an attitude of Christian contentment. So that's Christ ministering. We talked about the excellence of Christian contentment uh, and how wonderful a state it is, how attractive a state it is, and how it's morally beautiful to be content in any and every situation. It's especially uh, praiseworthy that we would give honor and glory to God when, we, when our hearts are breaking when some major tragedy is happening in our lives, that we would be strong and trusting God like Job did initially, at least, when he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the na name of the Lord be praised. To actually have that be our response. Or like Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, being able to have nothing good happen in your life physically, but still you're praising God, still trusting. God will never get better praise from you in this world than that. And so it's an excellent state of being. It's, it's marvelous and beautiful and wonderful, morally excellent in every way. And then the next week we talked on the negative side about how ugly complaining is and, and being discontent, that it should be morally repugnant to us. It's a form of rebellion, actually, for us to be murmuring or complaining against God. So those two taken together give us kind of the whole package in terms of motivation. We are to be attracted to the excellence of contentment, and we're supposed to be repulsed from being complainers, being weak, actually, that it doesn't take much for us to be moved off of peace and joy. Just a few, a few trials, a few little things, and then we're complaining. We don't want to be that weak. Paul says in, in Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through him who strengthens me. So that it's actually a very strong thing to stay content, and it's a very weak thing to give it up so easily. So that, those are two weeks, positively and negatively. We talked uh, about contentment in marriage and a little bit in parenting and how important that is and how wonderful it is for husbands and wives to model contentment for each other, uh, the challenges that come in marriage, but also the beauty of uh, being able to be content and how important it is to model that for our children, to be able to, to get them. They're, they're immature, and it's going to take them their whole lives to learn this. Uh, but I can just tell you they come into the world discontent. All right? If anything troubles their little bodies, at three in the morning, they're gonna let you know about it. We've talked about that. So they don't, they, I mean, they're not even redeemed. So definitely they're not content. At some point, by the grace of God, they come to a genuine faith in Christ, but they still have a long way to go in Christian contentment. But that you would model it for them, your husband, as a husband and wife, as a mom and dad, that you would model that, that would be uh, beautiful. So we talked about family life. Then we talked about contentment and suffering and how difficult that is and, and how valuable that is. And there's a lot of things that we can say about it. I've already mentioned a moment ago that, it, by, that by giving God um, uh, glory and trusting him and being peaceful under his hand during times of affliction and sorrow, 
uh, is the greatest worship you can ever give, but it's more than that. It also sets the greatest example you can ever set. Uh, basically, as God said, as Jesus said, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, he puts it up in its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. So what I've argued is that the circumstances, the providential circumstances of your suffering is a lampstand, that God has orchestrated a platform for you. And that if you see it rightly, it could be uh, you know, a cancer diagnosis, could be some chronic medical issue, could be a financial trial, could be something going on in your family in other respects, that that can be a platform because other people are going to be suffering those same kind of things. The question is, how do you carry yourself through that? So that's uh, contentment and suffering, and we uh, talked about that for a while. Now, um, last week also, at the end of that, we talked about contentment is not complacency. Contentment is not complacency. Remember that I mentioned uh, that a missionary with uh, Wycliffe in Cameroon, uh, not the family that we know, but uh, another missionary that was there, said, I never really thought that contentment is something that we should want. I mean, the whole world is, is uh, for the most part, lost. And there's so much suffering in the world. I, I just never thought that contentment would be, is the right reaction to that. But it showed, I thought, a misunderstanding of what contentment is. It's not complacency. What do I mean by that? Contentment's not complacency. I know we covered that just at the very end, but what do those words mean to you? Contentment is not complacency. Yeah, just accepting the status quo, accepting that everything is fine. You think about the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness, the external journey of gospel advance. Complacency would be, yeah, I struggle with sin, but I don't care. And it doesn't bother me. That's, that's not healthy, actually. And the same thing with uh, lost people, that we're just okay with uh, non-Christian relatives, co-workers, neighbors. It's just, we're okay. Or, or unreached people groups. People have never heard the name of Jesus. We're just okay with that. Well, that's not what contentment is all about. Complacency would be one word. It's just, I think the opposite of complacency would be zeal. A fiery, passionate commitment to something, Right? So uh, the flip side would be laziness and indolence, uh, kind of a couch potato approach to Christianity. That's not what we're talking about. Contentment is something else entirely. Um, <clears throat> contentment is not zeal. They're different. But I do think that contentment protects zeal. So if you go on the mission field and you run into major providential reverses, if you don't have contentment, what's going to happen? You're going to give up. You're going to leave the mission field. I mean, it happens every year, a lot. And so I'm not saying that every person who leaves the mission field, that there's something wrong there or this, and there's certainly significant and right reasons to leave the mission field. I'm not saying that. But there are some where you just scratch your head and say, you know, if you had been able to learn the secret of being content in any and every situation, I think you probably would still be there. You would still be in there, and the best is yet to come. If you just hang in there another three or four years, Wait till you see the harvest, and as Adoniram Judson and so many others did. You soldier through <clears throat> those hard times, and you don't give up. You know, like, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the, in, in the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So it's almost like you have to hear those words because it seems like it is, Right? As you're, as you're plowing and weeding and watering and waiting, it seems like the whole thing is in vain, but it's not. You just need to stay there. You need to be patient and pray and keep serving. Contentment helps you do that. It serves the mission and enables you to do it. So the, we didn't fully develop that last week, um, but that's where we're at. So now we're going to talk about practical steps 
we are a very practical people. We're very pragmatic. So it's like, all right, 10 easy steps to contentment. That's, that's what we're going to do today. No, I'm not. I'm not doing 10. There are no easy steps to contentment. But uh, let's do our usual review. Could someone read Philippians 4, uh, 11 through 13 for us? Okay, so one of the aspects of, of good teaching is repetition. Um, this is our last time together, but I, I, I think every week we've gone over this text. This is the home-based text on Christian contentment. Uh, there's a lot here. Remember the circumstances. Paul is writing to the Philippian church to thank them for money that they sent by Epaphroditus. So this is the very end of the letter. Um, by the way, I preached on contentment at the chapel at Southeastern, and uh, my good friend Ryan Hutchinson, who's one of the vice presidents there and used to be an elder and a member of this church, we were talking about the message as we walked away. He said, you know, I think I realized while listening to you that Paul's thanking the Philippians for the money and his lessons on contentment, I always thought it was kind of like a, a final greeting, grace and peace to you. Now I realize that it actually might be an organizing theme to the whole letter, that what he wants them to do is have a certain demeanor or disposition while they go through suffering and if they do, they're going to be able to shine a light in a dark place. But if they don't, then it's going to be very difficult for them uh, in Philippi. And I, I think that's right. There's a, there's a kind of a unifying theme to this thank you note at the end. And he's saying, you're going, at the end of Philippians 1, you're going through the same suffering you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. You're going through it too. And I want you to suffer in such a way that you are evidently not frightened in any way by what they're doing to you, that you can give them a sign that they are being destroyed and that you're being saved, he says at the end. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. So he wants them to suffer well. It makes all the difference. If you're Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail and you're complaining and yelling and swearing and angry, you're not going to lead anyone to Christ there. But if you're supernaturally peaceful, joyful, people are going to wonder what is going on in your life. And they're going to be, they're going to ask, like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? They'll ask you for that because you have something they don't have. And so this uh, lesson, he says, I want you to know about the money. I'm thankful for it. Well, definitely it's better than a growling stomach and being cold at night. So I'm grateful for the food that it's going to buy and the blankets or anything that I might need. Thank you so much. I am joyful but not the way you think i'm joyful because more than anything what it shows about you the fact that you love god enough to help me in my service the fact that you've actually stored up treasure for yourself in heaven it's been it's going to be credited to your account on judgment day i'm happy for that for myself though i was fine before the money came i'll be fine after it's gone don't be offended i am thankful but i want you to know the same thing that god's taught me i actually have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And I think you need to learn it too. That's what he's saying. Now that word contentment, as we've seen, is self-sufficiency, but not misunderstood as though we're independent or severed from the vine that Jesus is. He is the vine, we're the branch. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Not that. But I think we really mean like God is, is independent from the creature. <clears throat> God is independent from creation. Paul says, I've learned to be that way as well. I have found that the creature, the created things, don't add anything to my soul. They don't add anything significant to the well-being of my soul. Only Christ can do that. And having Christ, I don't need anything from creation. I don't actually even need to stay physically alive. For me, it's actually better by far to depart and be with Christ. And if I don't need to physically stay alive, then I don't need people to notice the good things I do for them. I don't need to be thanked. I don't need to be praised. I don't need to be stroked. I don't need my own personal freedom. I would like it. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, if you can get your freedom, do it. I would like my freedom, and you know that when the officials came the next day, they 
They laugh, Paul and Silas, and say, we, we actually like this. This is the best prison I've ever been in. I think I'm going to stay here. No, they, they took their freedom because it's better to be free, just like it's better to be, have a full stomach than a growling stomach. These things are better, but they don't add anything to my soul. Christ has given my soul everything I need. That's what he's talking about. So that's Philippians 4. We then looked at Jeremiah Burroughs' definition. Can someone read that for us? Thank you. So we broke that definition into three parts. First of all, it's a frame of spirit. Second of all, it relates to God's wise and fatherly disposal. Disposal means decisions about your life. God makes decisions about your life. Stop for just a minute. You may think, what right does he have to do that? Friend, he has every right. You belong to him. You are his. He made you. He owns you. And even more as a Christian, you're bought with a price. He owns you more than you can possibly imagine, but it's not a malicious thing. He is fatherly toward you, but he makes decisions about you without any apology, without conferring or consulting with you. He doesn't ask if you think it's best. He just makes decisions about you. All right, so those are the two headings. Frame of spirit that relates to God's disposal about you. And then in between, there's free, joyful, or glad submission. That's, that's how the, the definition works. So it's the frame of spirit, meaning it's a demeanor, an attitude, a disposition of heart. He describes it with four adjectives, which is sweet, inward, quiet, gracious. All right, sweet as opposed to bitter or sour. Christian contentment is not bitterness. It's not sourness. We said that bitterness may well be defined as looking back badly. You're looking back at what's happened in the past and you're bitter about it, negative about it. There's a matter of uh, unforgiveness in your heart. There's bitterness. Like, like Naomi, who didn't want to be called pleasant anymore. She wanted to be called bitter because God's hand has gone out bitterly against her. You remember? Because her husband and her two sons had died. That's not a minor trial for a woman back then. Big time trial. We're not minimizing it. But she didn't see what God was doing. She didn't see how famous someday she would be. She's actually in a book of the Bible. That's so awesome. And that from her daughter-in-law would come the savior of the world. I mean, God was doing some great things. She didn't even look around and see that the barley harvest was starting. That's a whole different story. I could go into the Ruth story. It's just a great story. Oh, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter because God's gone out against me. It's like, yeah, but there's a barley harvest at least. Anyway, we could go on and on about that. Anyway, no, it's not a bitter... It's not sour either, that Eeyore kind of negativity, that pessimistic or, as you would say, realistic way of looking at life. So negative, it always turns out bad, but I'm kind of worldly wise about that. I'm not expecting much in this world. That kind of, that sourness, that's not pleasant to be around. But instead, the opposite of that, honestly, is hope. A person who really believes the future is bright, it's well worth living. I mean, in this world and definitely in the next, the rest of our lives are worth living, right? God has gone ahead of you to prepare good works for you to do, and they're worth doing. And he's going to be with you the rest of your life. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's going to make the rest of your life fruitful, even if you're suffering an incredible physical pain. He's going to put you on a platform of suffering and make you and enable you to do good works that others can't do who aren't going through that. Whatever God does, it's right and it's good. And that's worth living. And even better, infinitely better. By, By the way, I can't wait to preach on Revelation 21 and 22. I I don't know. Should I do 22 sermons on Revelation 21 and 22? (laughs) Matt Harford came. I said, you're not going to hurry through those chapters, are you? You're not going to like do one chapter a week or something like that. It's like, no, why should I? I mean, those are great chapters. Heaven. And just to think of the joy that's waiting for us. No death, mourning, crying, or pain. That's next week. Don't get all excited. That's not today. We're doing the great white throne judgment today. But honestly, I'm looking forward to that. There's a sweetness to that. A sweet spirit. And it's a quiet spirit. 
and an inward spirit. It's something inside. We're not acting, and it's quiet under God's hand. It's not like a churning sea. And it's done by the grace of God. Only by the grace of God does this come about. All right, that's what it is. That frame of spirit or demeanor described like that. And it freely submits to and delights in what God your Father is doing in your life. That's what Christian contentment is. So that's the definition in every condition. All right, let's talk now about practical steps, how to attain it. All right, Jeremiah Burroughs said this, It is possible if you get the skill in the art of it, you may attain to it, and it will prove to be not such a difficult thing either, if you but understand the mystery of it. There are many things that men do in their callings that if a countryman comes and sees, he thinks it a mighty hard thing, and that he should never be able to do it. But that is because he does not understand the art of it. There is a twist of the hand by which you may do it with ease. Now that is the business of this book, to open you to the art and mystery of contentment. What is he saying there about contentment? Yeah, I mean, if you learn that technique, you can do it. He calls it, uh, what does he say, a, a twist of the hand. It's like, now, Jeremiah, I mean, we're talking about Christian contentment. Is it just a little twist of the hand? Well, in the end, it pretty much is. You just are choosing to be happy and peaceful in this situation right now by faith. Instead of, and, and then all of the thoughts and the stuff that Satan's trying, you're going to keep it out. It, in the end, it's not as complicated as we think. That great theologian Abraham Lincoln said, in the end, a man's about as happy as he makes up his mind to be. I think there's, that's about it, about it. In Christ, though, he left out that part. But I mean, in Christ, you can just, in the spirit, make up your mind, I'm going to be happy and peaceful today. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. So I think in the end, it's not as complex as we might think. And the fact is, honestly, you've done it many times. If the truth is told, if you've been a Christian any length of time, any number of years, you have been content in a, in a lot of situations, even surprisingly so. God has actually worked some contentment and peace in you from time to time. The problem is it doesn't abide. It's not as long. It doesn't happen as much as it, as it should be. And you've had a special trouble in, in bitter trials, things that are very difficult for you, those who are hard. Okay, fine. But just understand, it's not like it's not up and running in your life. It's not like you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. So that's what he's saying. It's, it's, there's a skill to be learned. I would add to it, there's a military side to it too. So he's likening it to a craft or an art. I would say fine, but I also want, to, want you to have a soldier mentality. There's a skillful soldiering here. Why would I want the military image to come in? Right, I mean, Matt, imagine if you were a finished carpenter and you had an enemy there in the house, all right? And you're doing the molding, the trim molding, right? And so you leave a room, it's done, you come back, what happened to the molding you just put up? It's been ripped down and shattered. Now, that's hard. That's a hard job. It's hard enough to do really skillful finished carpentry. But if you have a, a, an enemy of your soul, an enemy of all your works, who's trying to destroy your family, he's trying to destroy your life, then it's even harder. So let's be realistic. I'm not saying Burroughs isn't being realistic. There is a skill and art to it. Fine. But imagine a sculptor making a beautiful sculpture, and he's got an enemy right there. And as he's lifting up his arms, to, you know, he gets knocked, and then the whole thing's ruined. Now he has to start over. That's a little bit more like what the Christian life is like. We have an enemy, the devil, who's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. So there's a skill in art, but there's also a warfare aspect. Okay, there's a battle to be fought. Uh, Paul said that the, the secret of abiding Christian contentment is uh, strength from the Lord. 
I can do everything through him who strengthens me. So you're going to get the same image in Ephesians 6. So I want to put Philippians 4.13, the secret of Christian contentment is strength from the Lord, together with Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Someone read that for us. <clears throat> the central command here in those verses that you just heard a moment ago is what? All you have to do is look at the last kind of sentence because he says it twice in the last. What is the central command he wants you to do? Stand. Stand. The putting on of the spiritual armor is to enable you to stand. You see? So what does it mean then to stand your ground? What is that, that image? So he says it three times. Twice in the last sentence, but he's like, be strong in the Lord, his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Why? So you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. What does that mean? Don't move from where you're at. You need to take your stand and not move. Okay, that's the image. Well, how does that relate to contentment? Absolutely. They're going to give up in the work. Let's look at the definition. Right now, right now, you are content. In, in the midst of your circumstance, you're content. That means, according to Burroughs, you have a sweet spirit right now. Let's just zero in on that. You have a sweet spirit, a sweet, quiet, inward spirit. You also have a devil who's coming after you. What is he going to try to do to your sweet spirit? destroy it. He's going to try to make you bitter or sour. He's going to try to do that. How will he do it? Well, it says in the text, schemes. Right? What does that mean? Schemes. Or sometimes wiles. Or stratagems or strategies or techniques. Those are different words. Schemes. What does that word mean to you? Schemes. He's, there's, a, there's an intellectual side to schemes, right? Like a trap. There's an intelligence to a trap. So is Satan marshalling intelligence toward you? You better believe he is. He studies you. And I don't actually think any of us deals with Satan. I really don't. We get demons. We're small fish. <laughs> Satan's got a whole kingdom, and he's dispatched some lesser demons after us. When you get to be big fish like Jesus, he'll come after you directly and personally. All right, but we're dealing with the devil, by that we mean his dark kingdom. And so he's not omnipresent, he's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient, he's a creative being. He does get around though, he's very quick, all right? But I think still you're dealing with demons and these demons know you. They might even be assigned to you. People think about, you know, the guardian angel, you know, which really comes from just one verse where it talks about children and their angels always see the face of the Father in heaven. But if they're guardian angels, then they are probably whatever the opposite of that is, demons assigned to you who know you, know your weaknesses, they know your history, they know what works and doesn't work. And so there's an intelligence, and Satan is going to come after your contentment. He does not want you content. And so you have to stand your ground. You have to stand in the contentment. You're going to have to fight for it. And it might not be long. You know, we'll talk about your quiet time in a moment, but you'll finish your quiet time, and within 21 minutes, it's on. <laughs> Something's happened. Maybe during it. That's because you have your smartphone with you while you're having your quiet time. I would suggest that you don't do that. It's a source of endless temptation, right? It's like all kinds of interesting things going on in the world while you're having your quiet time. And your mind is divided and distracted. It's a different topic of a different day. But you have to stand, stand your ground. You've got to put on the full armor of God to stand. We have these images of David's mighty men that stood their ground. All right, in 2 Samuel, uh, Eliezer, son of Dodai the Ahohite. Uh, as one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistine gather, Philistines gathered at Pasdamim for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground 
and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. So in other words, what happened to Eliezer? Apparently he died. But because he stood his ground, Israel won the battle that day. Sometimes that's what it takes. A single soldier to say, I'm not moving. I'm willing to die here to give others a chance to retreat and regroup. So that seems what happened. But back in those days, before you know, gunpowder, before those kinds of weapons of, of mass killing, that bombs and all that are, uh, you kill enemies one at a time. And I think that, like, was it Shamgar that killed 800 men with an ox goad? That's got to be like the greatest warrior ever. How in the world do you kill 800 men with an ox goad? And the answer is one at a time, all right? And it takes a lot of strength. I'm thinking they're some of the 800 dumbest people in history. I'm thinking like 12 of you jump them at once and we're done, all right? But they're like, all right, my turn. Like they're standing in line like at, at a, at a uh, delicatessen. It's like you're taking numbers. And the next guy, boom, down he goes. I mean, like after about 400, I would think a different strategy would be it. But that's a different, I, I mean, I just think that's amazing. Shamgar, a scheme, right? Well, they need a better strategy. But the thing is, Satan is going to come at you and you have to defeat the temptations toward discontentment one at a time. You have to kill them one at a time. And you can kill temptations dead. You can't kill sin. All right, sin with a name, like complaining, you can't kill. Just like an alcoholic can't say, I have killed alcoholism in my life and I know I'll never drink again. That person's in danger, actually. So that sin by a categorical name cannot be killed while we live in this life. But we can kill specific temptations. And as that temptation comes, we can kill it dead. And we need to or we will become discontent. That's what I'm saying. You have to fight for it. So you, you take your stand and you put on the armor of God and then you've got to fight. You've got to take your stand like Eliezer did or like this other guy, Shammah, did. He took a stand in the middle of the field. All right. So fundamentally, picture contentment like a walled fortress. Like you are a watchman on the walls, that kind of thing, and you have to be vigilant and expect the invading army is going to come after you. And behind you are all of the people that you as a warrior are there to protect, and the walls are there to protect. And so you've got treasures to protect. You've got your own peace and joy and the good works God wants to do through you today. You've got these things to protect, and you've got an invading army, a besieging army, and you need to stand your ground. You need to fight and be vigilant. You're not going to go to sleep that night because you know that there's a besieging army coming and you need to be ready. So nobody, none of the warriors are sleeping. They're all on the walls that night. And so the same thing, there's a vigilance to this. You have to, you have to be alert. You can't say, gee, I never knew what hit me. I was doing so well in my quiet time at 7 o'clock or 6.30 in the morning and now at 10 o'clock, look, look at me. What happened to me? Well, I've, some combination of temptations and different things and you weren't ready, you didn't stand your ground and now you've sinned. And you are discontent and angry and frustrated and carnal. That's what happened. So that's the image I have is of, of defending and fighting. It says in John 10, 10, speaking of ultimately of Satan, although could also be in context speaking about false teachers. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So you have to have strength to fight the thief, the joy thief, the contentment thief, the contentment assassin, you could look at it a little more vigorously. He's like a, a contentment assassin who is intelligently stalking you and looking to destroy your peace and your joy. 
Now, we talked about Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, and I think this is kind of interesting. He, I don't think he's a Christian. He may or may not be. I don't really know. But somebody gave me this book, and I was looking at it, and, um, you know, he's talking about, about how you get to be really good at something. So I'm advocating that you guys get to be really good at Christian contentment. So he says you need 10,000 hours of practice. What Gladwell says in his book is those hours are hard to come by. I mean, the Winter Olympics, I guess, are done now. I mean, how, how long does it take to be a gold medal figure skater? 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours. <laughs> and then 10,001. Thanks, Randy. I appreciate that. 10,000 hours. What Gladwell would say, though, is don't underestimate how odd the circumstances are to get that young person their 10,000 hours. Ask their parents what it took. Right? It's, it's a weird life. It's actually an aberration. What I'm saying is the beauty of Christian contentment is it's, it can be learned in any and every situation. You're going to get your 10,000 hours of opportunity over the next, I guess, year and a half. I don't know, calculate it. Somebody tell me how, how many waking hours there are. How long is that? 10,000 10, hours. Somebody's, I know some, one of you math people is going to be, yeah, Randy, you're on it already. How many? 87.60, so that's like a year and a half. I thought year and a half. Waking hours, a year and a half. So that means a year and a half from now, you all might be experts on Christian contentment. Well, it's not quite like that because some of the any and every situation, they don't come about much. You might have five, seven years of general, general peace and serenity in your family life, and then that happened that diagnosis or that accident or something, and then things majorly shifted. So they're not all the same. And I'm not trying to be glib. What I am saying, though, is you should actually think, I can put in some hours today. I can practice today. What would be the relationship between how, let's take something that might irk some of you, and, I, and it's irked me before, uh, sitting in an unexpected traffic jam when you are somewhere you really need to get to. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> it's happening. And what I find so interesting are the creative ways that other drivers do different things to make your life difficult. It's like, why did you do that? I mean, what were you thinking? They're just strange things. What were you thinking? Oh, <laughs> but you're so funny. I love hearing what you have to say, Randy. Anything you want to share, I'd love to hear it. Well, last night. <laughs> but here's one I want to ask. How would how you sit in that unexpected traffic jam prepare you for a cancer diagnosis? I'm not being facetious. How would how you sit in that traffic jam get you ready for something bigger? Yeah. You'd say, actually, this was orchestrated. You have your own purposes. I didn't want to be late to that meeting. That was an important meeting, and now I'm going to be late. And uh, that hurts, but I don't want to give up my sanctification right now. I don't want to give up my peace and joy. I want to stay under your hand. I want to trust you. I want to trust you. Wouldn't mind if you got the thing going, all right? Wouldn't mind if I could still get there on time. It's even worse if, like, a plane to catch or something like that. That's when things really get stressful. But, you know, <clears throat> God has orchestrated learning opportunities for you each and every day. Ephesians 2.10 2, says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works with God, prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So I think we could argue that he has prepared in advance training opportunities for you on Christian contentment. Today are some chances. And again, keep in mind, we tend to think only negative. Don't think only negative. God might actually lavishly bless you today in some unexpected way and then want you to deal with it well. Deal with it properly. 
give him the glory. Give the money away. Um, do something. I mean, he's blessed you now. He wants you to, uh, to be content with the prosperity and not be a pagan with the prosperity. That's it, it, so any and every situation, you could, he's, he's training you and orchestrating. Someone read, if you would, Luke 16.10. I'm not sure what page that is uh, for you, but Luke 16.10. Wow, that's an important. How would that fit into what we're saying right now about teaching times, learning opportunities? Whoever is faithful in little will be faithful in much. Yeah, it really is. In the end, it's going to be the same mental, spiritual approach to the small trials as to the big ones. It's not like a radically different thing you're doing. It's the same kind of movements and motions in your heart and mind for the little ones as the big ones. And so the Lord is giving you opportunities. You know, he's training you every, every day. All right, so let's talk about some daily things you can do, daily spiritual disciplines toward contentment. And let's start with the quiet time, the daily quiet time. Um, I believe that it's best to have a quiet time every day, just like you eat every day. The analogy of eating is helpful. You can't do your week's eating you know, all on Sunday. Some of you may have tried that in the past, all right? But you can't do that all in one day, all right? You, you know that you eat every day and not just once a day, but multiple times a day. You know, Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we have to eat every day. I would go beyond that and say that you should do it first thing every day. So it says in Lamentations, that God's mercies are new every morning. I just love that. His mercies are new every morning. And then someone read Mark 135 for us, Jesus' example. So that was Jesus' habitual approach to his quiet time. What does it tell you? What do you learn from that? I love that. That's a great insight. If you didn't hear it, if Jesus needs to pray, how much more do I need to pray? Why would we say that we actually need to pray more than Jesus? We're not God. We have a sin nature. We have bad habits to overcome. Jesus had none of those. That's true. But he, he prayed. But what else does the, the, does the verse say, though? When did he pray? Uh, I mean, I don't want to say anything out of school here, but my, my house is quietest very early in the morning, a great while before dawn. <laughs> it just is. And so there are not going to be those distractions. There are not going to be those problems. There's also another aspect, and that is that God has given us a rhythm right from Genesis 1 of days evening and morning, day, evening and morning, the next day. So we have this thing called today. That's what you always ever have, today. And as I've said many times before, you cannot obey God yesterday and you cannot obey God tomorrow. You can only ever obey God today or right now. So there's something about the importance of today. It's even capitalized in Hebrews 3 and 4. If today, God set something up calling it today. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So you've got today. Well, today hasn't happened yet very early in the morning. It's all in front of you. It's like a, a pristine canvas to be painted on. And I'm not saying that there's not holdover or issues from yesterday that you have to deal with. I know that there's a history building and we have habits building. I know that. But there's a, a freshness from Lamentations 3.23, a freshness to the new day. And God gives you a, a new chance today. And you can, you can live this new, new day for the glory of God. So I would advocate having a quiet time very early in the morning, getting up and, and before the day happens. I'm not being legalistic about this. If you think your schedule makes that impossible, James, are you going to say something, brother? No, no, stretching? Okay. <laughs> I, I have to do that. Too. 
All right. Well, you have the floor if there's anything you want to add right now. Anything? No? Okay. I mean, just. Um, but yeah, I mean, just very early in the morning. And if you would say, I can't, it's got to be in the evening. I'm not, I'm not going to find fault with you. I'm not. But I just think there's something good about doing it first thing in the morning. And what does it consist of? I think Romans 12, 1 and 2 gives you kind of the, like the basic elements of what a quiet time should involve. So, so could someone read that for us? Romans 12, 1 and 2. All right. So uh, those are famous verses. There's a lot I could say about it. But um, I would say that the two basic elements of a quiet time are Bible intake and prayer. Those are the two basic. And prayer, the most important prayer, would be prayers of worship in which you're giving yourself to God and you're worshiping him for his greatness and all that. So those are the basic elements, and you see it right there. Uh, It starts with Scripture. It always starts with Scripture, even in Romans 12, in view of God's mercies, plural. And that's after 11 chapters of Paul unfolding the gospel in remarkable depth. What is the gospel? What has God done to save sinners like us? All right, in view of all that. So get all that uploaded in your mind again. Remember all of God's mercies to you. Now, you can't go through Romans 1 through 11 every, every morning, all right? But the idea of getting uploaded again in your mind the mercies of God by a specific set of texts of Scripture where he's speaking to you by the Spirit and he's saying some things to you about what he has done and what he expects from you and those things he's speaking to you. Based on that, you're going to be presenting your body to him as a living sacrifice. You're going to be offering yourself to him and saying, I am yours to command. How does that relate to Christian contentment? I'm yours to command. Do you remember our definition? All right. How does it relate? How does the, the submission, the presentation of the body to God as a living sacrifice relate to contentment? You're giving up yourself. You're saying to you, and to him, and you're saying to your wise and loving father, whatever you decide for me today, I'll do. That's, that's the essence of contentment. So there it is. Present your body as a servant. Offer your body to him and say, I'm yours to command. That's what it is, presentation. It teaches the same thing in Romans 6. This is just a recap of Romans 6. Since you've been set free from sin, present yourself as a slave to the one whom you obey. That is to God, a slave to righteousness. That's Romans 6. So he's just saying, present yourself as a living sacrifice, not a one-time dead sacrifice, but a continual sacrifice. You're just presenting yourself. And don't be conforming any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's, that's the word of God. So that's a good quiet time. It's the essence of a good quiet time, Romans 12, 1 and 2. So there's a lot of things. Psalm 119 is the Psalm, 176 verses of prayer and Bible. That's, that's basically all the 176 verses is. They're, it's written in the second person, you, for the most part. So the psalmist is addressing God in prayer, but the, in every verse, except like three of them, the word of God or the testimonies of God or the law of God is mentioned. So you get that beautiful combination of the word and prayer throughout Psalm 119. So you get, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my, for my path, Psalm 119, 133. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. These are good things to say to God in a quiet time, right? Oh God, would you just direct the footsteps of my path today and don't let any sin rule over me. That's the person I want to be today. Verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I've put my hope in your word. That's a, that's a quiet time right there. He's getting up and he's just crying out to God and praying and asking for help. And then 165, great peace 
have they who love your law and nothing can make them stumble. Do you not see that as a contentment verse? Just take the word peace out and put contentment in. It just would fit perfectly. Great contentment have those who love your law and nothing can make them stumble. You're going to cling to God's word by the power of the Spirit. There's many other verses. All right, look at the George Mueller quote. Could someone read that for us? This is a great quote. I came across this years ago, but I want to apply it to Christian contentment in the quiet time. Someone read this for us. That is so powerful. That's like the, the ultimate, like from church history, quote on quiet times. And this is George Mueller who cared for, uh, he and his co-workers cared for 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. Incredible. Food, clothing, shelter, education, evangelism, everything for 10,000 children. Sometimes I feel like I have 10,000 children, but I don't. Sorry, Jenny. I mean, it, was, it wasn't you. All right, <laughs> present company, accepted. But I mean, imagine caring for all the needs, 10,000, and he, he just did. But what is he saying? The most important thing I could do at the beginning of every day was what? Be happy and get happy in Jesus. And you're like, well, that's so selfish. No, it's not. Because if you don't do that, and Mueller was a very busy minister of the gospel. He preached, he wrote books, he raised money, he, he did all of these things. He said, but if I'm not in a happy state in the Lord, then what? All of those things that I would be doing would be effectively wood, hay, and straw. I mean, God could use it, but I'll get no reward. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I give all I possess to the poor, if I do all of these great things, but if I don't do it with a right demeanor, that's what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. There's a demeanor there. And the actions are there, but, but you get no credit for them. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but it's not done with a right spirit, a right demeanor of love, I get nothing. And you're like, man, I thought that was beautiful wedding poetry. It turned out to be a pretty rough passage of scripture. It is hard because the Lord is saying, I care your heart attitude. I love a cheerful giver. I don't need you to give anything. And if you will not give cheerfully, then I will not reward you. So it's like, I have to find a way to get content in the Lord. I have to find a way to get happy in the Lord or else I will not really serve him well today. I'll just be a hypocrite. I'll be acting happy. I'll be acting spiritual, but it's not right. So that's the quiet time. And it definitely relates to Christian contentment. And the general rhythm I'm giving you this morning on practical steps, get yourself into contentment first thing in the morning and then fight for it. That's what I'm saying has to happen. So he says, you got to do the first thing first or else there's nothing to fight for. The gates of the citadel are already open and, the, and the, all the buildings are burning. That's already happened. So you got to close all the gates of the citadel, get all the warriors up on the walls, get ready, get content, get peaceful, get secure, and then fight. That happens with a morning quiet time. That's what I, I'm suggesting. So that's the practical aspects. Beyond that, there's some other techniques that will help you. Like, for example, memorizing scripture. How, how would you say memorizing scripture would help you fight for contentment throughout the day? Memorizing scripture. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it, it affects your actual mindset set throughout the day. If you're actually repeating verses that you're working on, you're, that's what you're thinking about instead of thinking carnal thoughts or sinful thoughts. So it actually is dominating your mind. It doesn't matter what it is. You could be working like I am on a minor prophet or some other thing. It's not one of the most famous or impactful scriptures, but you're thinking about scripture and all scriptures God breathed and useful. So you're doing that. But then beyond that, look at Jesus as he fought against the devil. 
So what did he do there? How did he fight the devil's temptations? And, and, and the right scripture, the right one, he didn't just say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want over and over, all right? <laughs> he, would, he would take the specific temptation and find the, the right, he was skillful in that. He, he was a worker, a warrior who didn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He knew which one. And in every case, Jesus's scripture had to do with him being father-centered. The father hasn't told me to turn the stones into bread. I'll eat when the father says. That's what he's saying. And no, I'm not going to throw myself off the pinnacle of the temple and hope the angels will catch me because that would be me getting ahead of my father and forcing him to react to me. And I won't do that. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. And no, I'm not going to bow down and worship you. And I'm not going to get the whole world as a result. The father's going to give me the world anyway. He's already promised it to me in Psalm 2. But I'm not going to get it by worshiping you. All of his scriptures were father-centered, God-centered. That's how he fought it. You see, they weren't just any willy-nilly scriptures. It's a beautiful technique. It's just skillful swordmanship, if, if you can look at it that way. So I would commend to you the discipline of memorizing scripture. I would also commend, as many of you know, the discipline of memorizing extended portions of scripture. By that, I mean chapters and just a lifetime of working on it. Is there a good book out there for that? There's a booklet that I've heard of that might be... Thanks. So, Randy, I appreciate that. All right. Uh, next, beyond that, is delight in Christian contentment. I, I'm still in the morning quiet time. Remind yourself of the topic of this class. Say, oh, yeah, Christian contentment. <laughs> I mean, we can forget about it. It was like, you know, that's no, I, I actually think Christian contentment is a beautiful thing. So I'm going to just simply just keep it simple. Remind yourself of how beautiful and morally excellent contentment is and, and upload it in your mind every day. Say, oh, yes, I want to be content in Jesus today in any and every situation. That's a goal for me. Conversely, I do not want to be complaining. I don't want to complain. I don't want to murmur against you. I don't want to have speak the language of rebellion. So just get those things uploaded um, in your mind. Search me, O God, and know my heart. I love that. That's a great quiet time verse. Um, Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Along with that, confess any known sin. I think some of that is you should have the Holy Spirit search your heart in light of what you think you're going to face that day. I think you should get specific on a Tuesday morning of what your schedule is going to hold. I'm going to have this meeting. I'm going to go to this thing. I'm going to do that. How has Satan nailed me in those settings before? I think it's good to go ahead and look at the actual battle you're about to fight. Think as specifically as you can about ways that Satan might get you discontent. And go uh, ahead, of, uh, ahead of the day and think about that. And uh, there's so many things I'm telling you to do here. You know, just step by step. But renew the sense of God as your treasure. Say, you know, what I want today is I want you. Psalm 73, the psalmist says... You know, whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. If you could just tell yourself that. There is nothing that could come into my life today from the creature world that will in any way come close to having God through the Holy Spirit be with me today. There is no greater treasure. So just remind yourself of that. And then just simply ask for it. Say, Lord, would you make me content right now? <laughs> take away any bitterness. Take away any sourness. Take away, cover any sin. Just make me content in Jesus right now. I mean, there's no point in leaving your quiet time discontent, right? So you're like, well, that would take longer time. Well, <laughs> take longer time. 
But I mean, that's, that's what it is. Ask for contentment and pray for others to be content. I think that's so helpful. Get your eyes off, off of just you, and, but then branch out. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your kids. Pray for co-workers that are Christians, Christian co-workers. Pray for people in the church. Pray for specific situations of suffering that you may know in the church. Pray for them to be content, supernaturally content today. So these are all in the quiet time. And then put on your spiritual armor. And I just walked through that in sermons a number of like a year ago or more. But just walking through what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, lift up the shield of faith and different things like that. It's just helpful meditation. I don't think it's just an extended parable or allegory. I think that Paul actually wants you to think about imputed righteousness and the truth of God's word and the responsibility you have to share the gospel and the faith perspective in which you can see in the invisible spiritual realm the flaming arrows that Satan's firing at you of two categories, temptations and accusations. Those two things will kill your contentment. Be aware of them. What temptations is he going to hurl at you? What accusations of past sins? And how can you fight? So, and then get ready to fight. All right, so that's daily things. All right, after this, these are just long block quotes from the book that I'm writing because I just didn't have time. I was like, this BFL handout is taking me forever. And because I was reverse engineering from the chapter I had written back to a a kind of a trim outline and I just ran out of time. (laughs) So I was like, I, I didn't even, well, it's not published yet, so I don't have to give any footnotes. And I wrote it. So these are just some ideas. Extended topics for meditation. I'm basically just reviewing the class. Think again about an eternal perspective. The time is fleeting. Your life is a vapor. It's going to be over before you know it. So just in general, have meditation projects on that. And then the mystery of providence, the fact that nothing happens to you except by the meticulous, detailed providence of God. Sparrows don't fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Nothing happens to you by accident. Just meditate on that. Expand your understanding of that. Think again about the certainty and benefits of suffering. You cannot grow in holiness and you cannot spread the gospel without suffering. Big picture. It cannot happen. It's just written into the text. It's written in the way things happen. You will make no significant progress in holiness without suffering. And you will make no significant advance in the world of unbelief and the world of of people who have not yet come to Christ if you're not willing to suffer. So there's just suffering. It's going to happen. And even so, even apart from holiness and the advance of the gospel, in this world you will suffer because of Adam's sin. Don't expect, like the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bubble to be around you your whole life while you make it through this world of suffering and pain. It doesn't work like that. Just for that one time, God gave them a miracle so they didn't get burned to death. But for the most part, this world is full of suffering. And, and that suffering, he's going to bring it in your life. It's certain to come. So prepare yourself. And this may be hard for you, but I would suggest that you prepare yourself in advance for extreme suffering. What would be the hardest earthly circumstance for you to face? What would be second hardest, third hardest? Take an inventory of your earthly physical blessings and then give them up to God. And make a commitment to him. Say, Lord, as best I can with your help, if you should take this or that from me or bring this or that into my life, I want to be content. I want to respond like Sarah Edwards did when she found out that Jonathan had died. I want to be able to kiss the rod and put a hand over my mouth and not say anything harsh against you. Would you please get me ready for that? So that you don't act like it's a strange thing when it might happen. It's not a strange thing. God does these kinds of things. So don't charge him with injustice if he takes your child from you. It's not your child. It's his, ultimately. I mean, he's entrusted the child to you. It is your child. I'm not saying it's not, ultimately. But ultimately, it's his child. 
And so it's just amazing. Grieving parents think they're taking, like, like pulling rank on God. It's like, no, you don't understand. I knit that child together in the mother's womb. That child belongs to me. And, but parents, grieving parents, can sometimes say to God, you had no right. And that's a, that shows a misunderstanding. We've, we've really, at that point, misunderstood, and we've made an idol of our children. And these are hard things. And you're like, I pray it would never happen to me. But I still think it might be beneficial for you to go ahead of time and say, Lord, I'm ready, or get me ready for extreme suffering. Um, there's other helpful hints here. They're even written out for you. So... Um, uh, some projects at the very end, I just want to read them. Um, some special projects that aren't directly related, but I think they can be helpful. Study the heroes of church history. Read good missionary biographies. It will put your, your suffering into perspective. It just, it just will. <laughs> when you read of Elizabeth Elliot and her efforts to, to reach the... the uh, um, well, they were called Alka, but now they have a new name. I forget what they, they call it. Uh, Hwarani. Hwarani. It's hard to pronounce. The Hwarani that, that killed her husband to lead them to Christ. And then you look at what kind of courage and strength it took to do that. It just puts our, our suffering in perspective. For us, reading to the Golden Shore, Adoniram Judson's story, I'm just saying you're not going to suffer like he did, most likely. And so just see the way he was. And it wasn't easy for him. It's like he was knocked back. It was hard, but to read that. So do that. Uh, study the persecuted church. There's, there's devotionals now, like um, Voice of the Martyrs and others have put out some um, extreme, extreme devotion, uh, patterns of extreme devotion. Um, that uh, There's some books, uh, like Jesus Freaks, it was called, um, that writes about uh, stories, testimonies of suffering uh, people throughout church history. Uh, pray for the spread of the gospel to unreached people groups. Hold the ropes and missions. I think that will help you grow in contentment. Um, fast periodically from worldly pleasures. You can do lots of kinds of fasts. Like, imagine an electronic fast. Like, no electronic entertainment for a week. You know, that could help you grow in contentment. Um, get involved in new ministries that will stretch you, things that will be hard for you to do. All right? Especially get involved in ministries in which you're probably not going to be thanked at all. <laughs> you're just going to serve and no one will notice. That can be helpful. Visit the sick and comfort the bereaved. Find out if someone dies in the church, even if you didn't know them well, go to the funeral. You know, go to the funeral home. Look on the face of the corpse. Look into the face of the grieving. That will give you a perspective. You know, it says in Ecclesiastes, it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. There's a certain wisdom to that, which is reminding yourself we're all going to the grave. And if you think that way, it will help you be set free some from earthly commitments like we have. All right, well, there's a lot more in there, but we're out of time. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.